This is Archive Atlanta, episode 64, Housing Projects. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week I am here to talk about the very first housing projects in Atlanta. Not only was Techwood Homes the first in Atlanta, but it was actually the first in the entire nation and built solely for white families. Built almost simultaneously with university homes, which were for black Atlantans, both of these projects came at the destruction of already existing settlements of extremely poor African Americans. Today, we're going to start with Atlanta's earliest slums, what they were called, where they were, who lived there, and then move into the Great Depression, the New Deal, and who was behind this idea for public housing. In the earliest of Atlanta's days, shanty towns existed as the only places that newly emancipated slaves were allowed to live. I've mentioned probably all of these before at some point in the last 60-so episodes, um, but shantytown being the term to describe a settlement of houses thrown together, shoddy construction, you know, no indoor plumbing. In Atlanta, they went by the names of Shermantown, Jenningstown, Summerhill, Mechanicsville, and Beaver Slide. Then there were places with names, but they weren't exactly settlements. Uh, When you read about these places in early newspapers, they're described at times like a gathering of people who were homeless, um, and they had names like Hobo Hollow, Pigtail Alley, uh, Bone Alley, or even Humbug Square. Another type of slum were those filled with gambling or prostitution, and those were places like Murals Row, which was at Decatur and Pryor Street, um, or Snake Nation, which I talked about in the Castleberry Hill episode. The two slums we're going to focus on today were Tech Flats and Beaver Slide. Tech Flats is also sometimes known um, as Tanyard Bottom because Tanyard Creek passed through the area. It was just south of Georgia Tech. It was north of Mill Street, which still exists today. And to the right side of its boundary was Lovejoy, which is also still a street. If you study Atlanta's history, you'll understand just how amazing that fact is. The east side of the slum was bordered by Williams Street, and although we do still have Williams Street, this section no longer exists, as it's essentially the downtown connector. So when you're driving down 7585 um, and you look to your right or to your left and you see Georgia Tech, that would have been Williams Street. Georgia Tech hated Tech Flats. University president at the time, M.L. Britton, tried for many years to quote-unquote do something about this dilapidated area. Now, Beaver Slide was just south of Atlanta University, which I talked about in episode 5. It was north of Spelman College, and it was sandwiched between Lawshe Street, which still exists, and Elm and Dora Streets, which also still exist. In Atlanta's history, there is another area called Beaver Slide um, that was over on Ivy and Decatur Streets, but it was raised in the 1880s after a smallpox outbreak. So I've also read that Snake Nation was renamed Beaver Slide later in history, The bottom line is it's really, really hard to get clear and accurate facts about these neighborhoods and where exactly they were. So both of these slums, although one is in the middle of a white part of Atlanta and one is in the middle of a black side of town, both were populated by majority African-American Atlantans living in extreme poverty. It's really interesting to do this research because race is certainly a factor because it's Atlanta and so is a factor, but class was the biggest issue here, like class distinctions. Because here we have presidents of two universities. So these are upper class educated men, one from each race, and they're both plagued by these slum areas right next to their schools. 
John Hope, who was president of Atlanta University, had been trying for four decades to keep vice, disease, and crime as far away from AU as possible. Let's fast forward to 1929. In the final months of that year, the stock market crashes and our country's worst economic depression begins. For the South, it struggled even harder than other regions because it had already been in an economic downturn that started in the early 20s. Georgia would not really free themselves of the Depression until the beginning of World War II. For Black Georgians, times are even worse. When you throw that that I just described and then put Jim Crow laws, low levels of education, and menial jobs on top, you can understand why communities like Tech Flats and Beaver Slide even existed. President Franklin D. Roosevelt is responsible for what we call the New Deal, which was really a collection of so many smaller laws and legislative acts. In 1933, Congress passed the National Recovery Act, which established the Public Works Administration. It was the duty of the WPA to oversee and provide funds for slum clearance and public housing construction. Around the country, this program financed the building of dams, ports, roads, airports, bridges, hospitals. You can't go anywhere in America without there being something that was built by the WPA. To lead his new organization, FDR appoints Harold Ikes as administrator. Now, this is important because for a white man in the 1930s, Ikes was extremely progressive on race relations, and in this position, he ended segregation in the cafeteria and restrooms of his departments and in all national parks. He even served as president of the Chicago NAACP. In charge of the WPA, he establishes the Office of Negro Affairs, requires contracts to hire a representative number of black labor um, when they're building in certain places, and it reserves half of all housing projects that we build in the South to be for black residents. In Atlanta, Charles Palmer was a real estate developer and known as the authority on public housing and urban development. After Techwood Homes was completed, he went on to serve as president of the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Housing Officials. By 1940, he was appointed by President Roosevelt as a defense housing coordinator. Now, it was his idea to select Tech Flats as the first slum for clearance in the city. Now, he claims it's because his commute to work would pass him by the area every morning. I think Palmer lived in Brookwood, which is that area that's like South Buckhead, um, just as you turn into Midtown. But the thing is, Palmer was also a really savvy investor. Tech Flats was surrounded on all sides by all-white neighborhoods and the next to an all-white Georgia Tech. He saw this chance to use funds from a government program to improve the land and real estate values in a part of Atlanta close to his home and where he owned other buildings. To lure the school to get fully on board with this project, Georgia Tech would get a new dormitory, a nice new neighborhood housing next door, and possibility that with a future administration not willing to fund public housing, the school could actually absorb these units um, as part of their dorms. Federal law required the site to be governed by limited dividend corporation in order to ensure that no one person was getting rich from these plans. So Palmer forms a board of influential men, names like Clark Howell from the Constitution, Atlanta Mayor James Key, and Tech President Marion Britton among them. Techwood Inc. was born in 1933 and immediately hires an architect and a construction company. Over on the west side, Atlanta University President John Hope 
By the way, short aside, he is the husband of uh, Lugenia Hope Burns, who I spoke about in the Neighborhood Union episode. But he had previously tried to appeal to the Hoover administration to give him funds to address this beaver slide slump. In 1932, O.I. Freeman, who was a black engineer, and W.J. Sayward, who was a black architect, approach Hope and the Atlanta University uh, board, and they have this plan to build university homes. The university votes and they approve the property assemblage, the slum clearance, and the construction. And so this is where Charles Palmer comes in. And he's like, hey, I'm building this thing. You want to build this thing. Why don't we band these two projects together and apply for funding as one unit? Palmer was a white man in a segregated time, so this was going to make things a little easier. But also, John Hope had actually just suffered a small heart attack. So Palmer goes and he takes on the role as media liaison. And this, I learned in my research, is where the confusion begins, and Palmer gets misattributed with coming up with both Techwood Homes and University Homes, and that is grossly incorrect. In 1933, both projects are submitted for approval to the WPA. Hope and Palmer travel to Washington to promote the ideas and sell the project. Harold Ikes approves the first two housing projects in the United States and they're going to share $4 million in financing, which would cover about 85% of the costs. But this is Jim Crow South, and Techwood Homes for white residents will get $2.375 million for 600 apartments, and University Homes was going to get $1.085 million for 640 apartments. John Hope was not happy. Uh, he protests this vehemently, and he wins an increase to $2.1 million for his project. Now, don't for one minute think that all of Atlanta were rejoicing in the awarding of these projects. For local leaders, there is a huge opposition to the federal government coming in and interfering. City leaders fought hard against federally funded housing, threatening to hold back water, sewer, fire, and police services until they were paid a fee. See, these projects were tax-exempt, so the city was not seeing tax revenue from there. A bill quickly passes Congress in 1936 and allows the government to pay these service fees to local municipalities. Another interest group fighting these projects are local landlords. The Atlanta Apartment Homeowners Association is accusing these projects of making an already high vacancy rate 20% worse. Over 100 property owners share their outrage, but Palmer explains that the families moving into public housing cannot afford private rents, so this is like a moot point. In 1934, the U.S. Comptroller decides to review the constitutionality of housing projects. And the argument there is that the joint financing of interstate housing violates the Interstate Commerce Clause. So there's another pause. Congress pretty much rushes to pass what's called the Emergency Housing Corporation, or the EHC. And now they have all authority um, to build housing projects, but it takes control away from these newly formed uh, corporations. So Techwood Inc., is basically disbanded and then all control is given to the government. The EHC signs the contracts for Techwood and University Homes in 1934. And shortly thereafter, Ikes travels to Atlanta to push the button that will blow up the slums. First up, Beaver Slide. 18 acres containing almost 200 homes. Before demolition, W.E.B. Du Bois, who at this time is on his second round of Atlanta living and overseeing the sociology department at Atlanta University, is tasked with surveying the area before it's demolished. 
With the help of his students, he surveys 242 families living in this space, and he determines that poverty is the main ailment of this neighborhood. The prevailing belief at the time with most of these slums by most of upper middle class Atlanta um, is that like they're filled with violent crime and vice. And Du Bois wanted to make sure that everybody knew that this wasn't an accurate description of Beaver Slide. Of 235 families that provided data, 69 of them had zero regular income. 37% of the men above age 10 were unemployed and 35% of the women above age 10 were unemployed as well. Now remember, this is child labor law time, so over the age of 10, you were expected to work. 207 of these families did not know where they were going to live once these homes were demolished. Tech Flats is cleared next, with about 300 homes disappearing within hours. The early census lists that this neighborhood was almost 80% black, with fewer white families um, left just before demolition. Palmer's reports of this slum claim that 1,000 white families lived in these conditions, but we realize now what they did, and that was taking neighborhood landlots that bordered the area and using their data under the umbrella of Tech Flats. Because the reality is it was about 200 black families that were forced out of this space for 500 white families to move into the housing project. Construction for university homes began in September of 1934 and was completed three years later. In April, the first residents, Oscar and Layla Banks, moved into apartment 457 along with their daughter, Ruby Croft. They were two-story brick buildings in the international style. The idea was plain, simple, maximizing space and light. In addition to the apartments, there was a library, nursery school, medical, dental facilities, laundry rooms, parks. The tenants belonged to their own association. They had men's and women's clubs, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, and a garden club. And it even had its own credit union. The new residents of University Homes paid about $2.65 up to $4 uh, per week, and they brought in a monthly income that ranged from $8 to $30. It would remain open until residents were relocated in 2006, and it was fully demolished in 2009. Currently, this site is being developed for a housing community called Scholars Landing, and that should be done within the next few years. Techwood Homes opens in 1936. Architect Flippenburge designs Georgian-style, fireproof brick buildings that were two-story row houses and then three-story garden apartments. Rent here would include most utilities, and each was equipped with the latest electronic appliances. Just like university homes, the tenants had an association, and then here they had uh, what was called Techwood News, which was their own newspaper. There were six stores on site, recreational facilities, health clinic. It would remain an all-white housing project until about 1968, so right around the civil rights bill. And just a few years later, demographics were 50% white, 50% black. Neighboring Coca-Cola headquarters feared that crime would rise when the housing project residents changed skin colors, and they proposed relocating residents and replacing the site with middle-income housing. Atlanta's first black mayor, Maynard Jackson, shelved that plan and instead renovated the Techwood structures. Nothing, though, was going to save Atlanta's housing projects from the drug epidemics of the 1980s. Places like Techwood and other notorious communities struggled with crime and gang violence, 
And once Atlanta is chosen for the 1996 Olympics, an image control campaign sweeps the city. That is a whole other episode, but Techwood Homes was almost completely raised, and the new athlete housing is constructed in its place. So that is what you can see, again, on the connector, you see those really tall, um, I guess used to be apartments for the athletes, and now they're student housing. Um, now behind it, no one might know this is there, but there is one building left from the original Techwood Homes. So I have a picture of that on social media, um, but it is something you can drive by and see if you'd like. The Atlanta Housing Authority is started by Charles Palmer in 1938, and he serves as chairman until 1940. Although both Techwood and University Homes were built by the Public Works Administration, the next six housing projects were completed by the Housing Authority. In 1941, Atlanta saw the opening of Egan Homes, John Hope Homes, and Herndon Homes. In 1942, it was Grady Homes and Capital Homes. All of those except Capital Homes were for low-income Black families. So there you have it, the story of Techwood Homes and University Homes, the first two housing projects in the United States developed right here in Atlanta. And so funny timing situation here. I had this episode written and ready to go. And then I found out that PBS has a new documentary called East Lake Meadows, a public housing story that is coming out on Tuesday, uh, March 24th. And so I have uh, my friend King Williams is the associate producer on this. But this is a more recent history. I think it's the maybe it's the 70s or the 80s. But it is about the housing project over in East Lake in Atlanta. Thank you all for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, do me a favor, leave a rating or a review on iTunes. It helps people find the podcast um, so we can share this history with more people. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll see you next week.